Welcome back. I'm Shane McClelland. I'm Lori Gum. And these are the Q Files. With our second season drawing to a close, we've been examining the stories that we thought were interesting, but hadn't yet found an opportunity to share. As luck would have it, while planning this episode, we were reminded of a tale shared with us from our friend, Bucky Cutright, who you may remember from a variety of our episodes like Holiday Haunts and Dining with the Dead, or from his fantastically haunted ghost tours of Columbus. We thought it might be fun to take a twisted turn on Mother's Day, so... This week, we'll be telling you a lightly edited version of Bucky's tale of a murderous mother. Ethel Geller Yeldum's story is one of a woman at her wit's end in a society that failed her. Any honest account of her life, and one not told just for morbid murder porn, makes it clear that her life and story and the stories and lives of her victims should have been much different. Ethel's story begins on January 12, 1885. She was born to Peter William Rader and Mary Bob Rader in Gehanna, Ohio, a town just outside of Columbus. She would go on to marry Charles Otto Geller on New Year's Day in 1908. Ethel and Charles would produce five children during their marriage, Charles M., Ernest, Margaret, Irvin, and Vernon. Disaster would strike on April 18, 1918. Charles, Ethel's husband, was at work. He was a night fireman at the Jeffrey Manufacturing Plant in Columbus where they lived. While at work, he collapsed, later dying in an ambulance of what was reported as heart disease or a heart attack, leaving Ethel a single mother with five children. Without many options, Ethel quickly found a suitor, and by March 8, 1919, Darby Yeldum would become her husband, less than a year after her first husband's untimely demise. To say the couple's marriage was an intimate one would be an understatement. Ethel was in a state of perpetual pregnancy since their wedding and, if truth be told, even a couple of months beforehand. Together, the two spent the next seven years filling their modest west side home to the rafters with nearly the same number of children. Add to the total another five kids from a previous marriage, and you can imagine what an exhausted woman Ethel must have been, and how chaotic the household would have been. We next find Ethel in the history books on August 28, 1922. At around 10 p.m., she was preparing to step onto a streetcar near an entrance of the Ohio State Fairgrounds. As she was doing so, she noticed a small rectangular case lying on the curb. Once settled into her seat, she opened the box to find it contained a very expensive-looking pair of eyeglasses. Ethel wanted to do the right thing, so she set out to search for the spectacle's owners. She answered lost and found ads, then placed and posted one of her own. After some time had passed without an owner coming forward, Ethel reasoned the glasses had belonged to a visiting fairgoer and, With further attempts to reunite the object with the owner seeming futile, tucked the glasses away in a drawer and thusly put the matter to bed. By 1925, Ethel's reprieve from bad luck had ended and her life was undoubtedly in a dizzying downward spiral. It started when Ethel made the shocking discovery that Darby had been molesting her eldest daughter, Mildred. During his trial, it was also revealed that Darby 
was actually African American rather than Native American, and that his true last name was Medley. He had spelled his last name backward and lied about his ethnicity in an attempt to conceal his previous criminal record. As these events were coming to light, Ethel was struck another blow when her 10-month-old infant, Walter, died of cholera and phantom. 1926 wasn't any better. In July of that year, eight-year-old Elaine ran into the street chasing a ball and was hit by a car. Her skull was fractured and six of her ribs were broken, but in time she recovered. That December, Darby was finally sentenced to 10 years in the Ohio Penitentiary for sexually abusing Mildred. While this must have given the family some solace, it also meant Ethel had to find a way to survive on the meager earnings she was able to draw by washing clothes and selling newspapers on the corner of State and High Streets in downtown Columbus. Incredibly, her daughter Mildred not only held academic and athletic honors throughout the trauma and turmoil, but she was also able to help support the family when she was hired at Mount Carmel Hospital as a student nurse. If only that were all she would have to bear. Looking back, spring couldn't have been a happy time of year for Ethel. It was in April of 1918 when her first husband, Otto, suffered a fatal heart attack while cleaning a broiler at the Jeffrey Manufacturing Plant in Italian Village. It was in March of 1919 that she married Darby Yeldum, and it was in April of 1925 that Darby raped Ethel's 13-year-old daughter, Mildred. It was in May of 1928 that the police returned 10-year-old Vernon after he had walked all the way to Dayton to get away from the home his mother worked so hard to provide for him. By the first week of May, 1930, the struggle to raise her family became a strain too great for Ethel. On the morning of May 6th, she told a neighbor that they may have to stop what they're doing and go to Greenlawn Cemetery, soon as she was about ready to give up. The neighbor didn't take the comments seriously and told her to brace up. That day was a novel one for the Yeldum children. Despite the family's tight budget, Ethel bought them each new dresses, and rather than go to school, they traveled by taxi to Baker Art Studio, where they had a family portrait taken. Afterward, they returned home and had an uncharacteristically extravagant meal. Following dinner, Mildred left her work at Mount Carmel Hospital, and the other two children from Ethel's first marriage, Vernon and Irvin, went to see a movie at the Ohio Theater. Around 4 p.m., a neighbor came over to use a telephone and noticed that Ethel seemed worried about something. She also noticed that Ethel was throwing away the uneaten remnants from supper, a very unusual thing for someone in her financial position to do. After the neighbor left, Ethel told the children that they were going on vacation the next day and that they would need to retire early that evening in order to get proper rest for the trip. Ethel then instructed the children to wait until she called them each to come upstairs and prepare for bed. One at a time, each child climbed the stairs where their mother bathed them, dressed them in their nightgowns, lovingly combed their hair, and then picked up a rifle wrapped in a towel and shot them through the heart. 
After murdering each child, she carefully laid their bodies out on mattresses in the front bedroom. The last child to go upstairs was 10-year-old Elaine. Once she realized what was happening, she somehow managed to escape through a window onto the roof of the back porch. A group of boys playing baseball in the vacant lot next door saw Elaine, clad only in her underwear, shouting, Murder! Murder! Mother is killing all of us! Then, they saw the woman's arm reach out to grab the screaming girl and drag her back into the house through the window. Thinking Elaine was just getting a licking, the boys shrugged and continued their game. Moments later, Mildred returned from work and heard crying coming from upstairs. When she called up to see if everything was okay, Ethel replied that she had just punished one of the younger girls. Then she asked Mildred to run to the corner store for stamps. No sooner had Mildred left than Irvin returned from the theater. As he walked in the door, he heard pain moaning coming from the second story and rushed up the stairs to see what was wrong. There, he found his mother still alive, but with her shirt covered in blood, from a bullet wound to the chest and a rifle by her side. Also in the room was the dead body of his little sister, Elaine. Instinctively, Irvin ran at to shout for help from the window of the front bedroom. The horror which awaited him there was beyond his imagining. The sight of his six youngest siblings' bodies laid out upon the beds was nearly paralyzing. As he fought to scream for help through tears and gasps of air, Mildred stood outside, the book of stamps slipping from her hand onto the sidewalk as she processed what she was hearing. Once the police and ambulances arrived, it was discovered that Ethel had left the following note. Mildred, Irvin, and Vernon, don't think too hard of mother for this, please. Just always try to do what is right. Listen to older advice. It will always be for your good what is told you. I am so tired I can't go on, and no one to take care of the rest is why I take them with me. I want you to go to church. Do as you were told and try to live this down. Goodbye, Mother. But Ethel didn't die. The bullet had come close to but missed her heart, and doctors were certain that in time she'd make a complete recovery. Police detectives begged her to talk, but... She refused to answer questions and would only utter barely audible pleas to be left alone. On May 8th, as her seven slain children were being lowered into their mass grave at Union Cemetery, she thrashed about her hospital bed in anguish. The two youngest children, three-year-old Alan and Alice, were buried together there in a single casket. On May 16th, Ethel complained of chest pains then moments later got her final wish in spite of her prognosis and died from internal hemorrhaging. She was buried beside her children in Union Cemetery. Plans to erect a tombstone at the grave were never materialized and today it appears as an empty patch of grass. After the tragedy, it was discovered that Ethel had written a letter to Darby informing him that she was going to kill their children but its delivery was slowed down by the penitentiary's mail vetting process, and it wasn't received until far too late. 
The murders made international news. A mother taking the lives of seven of her children was unthinkable to many. And even back then, folks were fascinated by crime and murder. Papers all over, and especially locally, splashed the story on the front page and included all of the gory details. This led to a smattering of letters to the editor, many folks decrying the coverage. A letter written by a J. Stewart Innerst, minister of the First United Baptist Church in Westerville, is worth sharing, at least in part, as it still holds true today. In it, he says, It is foolish to think that crime can be cured chiefly by greater repression of the criminal, as you and Mr. Ireland have been suggesting during recent months. Let the newspaper begin at the other end by repressing crime news from glaring capitals and small type, and from the front page to the back page. Let it take a fearless stand against our social order with its rotten politics and with greed for gain exalted above integrity of character. Let the newspaper labor to humanize our city slums and transform a society organized for the have-gots against the have-nots. Let it do these things, and it will begin to see that crime is a symptom of something radically wrong with society, and for which all of us, including the best, share responsibility. The criminal is the person who stumbles and falls in the darkness, in which we all are more or less willing to live. In 2012, the house where the murders occurred was demolished as part of the city's vacant and abandoned property initiative. Today, the home's concrete steps lead to an empty patch of grass, much like the graves of Ethel and her children, and serve as a subtle reminder of the house that was once there, where the desperation of not having enough drove an otherwise loving mother to do the unthinkable. And thanks again to Bucky for pointing us in the direction of the story and graciously allowing us to use many of his words to tell it. And stay tuned. Bucky will be collaborating with us on our season finale. So stay tuned and don't miss that in a couple of weeks. You can learn more about Bucky or join him on a tour by visiting ColumbusGhostTours.com. And if you're a parent struggling or know someone who is, consider asking for help or contacting the National Parent Helpline at 1-855-427-2736. Thanks for joining us. This show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. Until next time, friends. Be weird. Stay curious. These are the Q-Files. <laughs> <laughs>